Welcome to Pontifax. I'm Fry. And I'm Brie, ranking all of the popes from Peter to Francis. And this is episode 80, Pope Donus. Donus. Like donut. Donus. Donus. It has been a long time since we've recorded. So long. <laughs> wow. Yeah, like I think a month. Yeah, we were like, hey, quarantine, we're going to build an awesome backlog. And then mm. um, you have children. <laughs> And they need to be schooled. They need a lot of things. They need to be schooled and fed. And I have dogs and they're not as problematic. So I am very ahead in terms of writing episodes for you. Oh, editing is just like, I'm so tired. I look at the audacity to edit and I'm like, oh, listening to voices is hard. It would be hard, especially after listening to so many voices all day. You're still getting an episode on time, listeners, but I just want you to know that it has been ages since we've actually recorded, so we have a lot to talk about. And before we talk about Donus, I want to talk to you about something that we talked about many, many weeks ago, but only just came out on our feed last week, which was in Vitalian's episode, episode 78. Do you remember we were talking about the tonsures? Yes, the tonsure. How do you get it different? Yes. So we did get some emails about the different types of tonsures. So Gene Chapman and Lori Ankerson wrote into us uh, on Twitter telling us about the tonsure, the English tonsure. There's a lot of speculation that it was triangle or delta shaped, which led down to a rabbit hole where we started talking about Norman tonsures, which loved a reverse mullet, and then Celtic tonsures, which loved a hella mullet. So that happened, and then I got an email from Angelica Burton, and she sent pictures. <gasps> I love this person already. I want to show you. So first off, I'm going to send you what the Celtic tonsure would have looked like. Are you ready? Oh, no, not at all. Oh, boy. <laughs> it is like the most hella intense mullet because it is shaved the whole top and the whole front all the way back to the ears and then left long yeah and so i emailed her back and i told her how much you were going to love looking at these images and she's like oh well if you liked that so much i have to show you the the triangle version so they think this is less likely, and when you see it, you'll understand why, but this image just about killed me. So it's the image on your left, okay? Oh, imagine, like, Britney from the 90s with, like, this the skinny and then the chonk headband, but it's just the shaved part. That would be the worst to maintain ever. <laughs> yeah. Getting this email entirely made my day, so I just want to, again, thank all of the people that were involved in our incredible tonsure journey. So, Gene Chapman, Lori Angerson, and Angelica Burton, you guys are amazing, and, uh, yeah, thank you for sharing, because, and, and we will find a way to post these images for you about the tonsures, because, wow. That's some uh, hairstyle choices, and, like, I look, I, I feel like... It would make them stand out as a group. It certainly would. And you know what? 
we think about tonsures today, like the traditional tonsures, and it's it's not a great look, but I'm glad that at the Synod of Whitby in 664, they universalized this because these ones are so much worse. I don't like the donut, but I didn't know it could get worse. Yeah, well, apparently it could get worse, and they all thought, okay, let's just universalize the donut. And that is a perfect segue because we're talking about donus. Ah, yes. So donus, also known as donos or domnus, which will become important later, was born in Rome and was the son of Mauritius. Beyond that, very little is known about him and his early life, since the only real source that we have on Donus's papacy is the Liber Pontificalis. And we all know this is never a strong start for success. Never. So what we do know is that he entered the church and became a priest, and on February 2nd of 673, he was made a cardinal priest in the papacy of Adeodatus II. Deborah Booten McCoy says he was 63 years old when he was made a cardinal, which means that at the time of his election in June of 676, he was a fairly old man. And I want you to keep that in mind for when we get to Facium Sanctus. Okay. Old man. Donus was elected as pope almost immediately after Adeodatus' death in June, but because they were still conventionally waiting for imperial approval, there is a four-month gap before he could be officially consecrated as pope on November 2nd. This is much shorter than the other Sede Vicantes that we've seen, and since Constantinople was currently under what is called the First Arab Siege of Constantinople at this time, which had lasted a whole four years, we can assume again that the Exarch is the one who stepped in to make this happen. And this would all be fairly straightforward and business as usual, but something happened in this time that is also recorded with some special omen flavoring from our new authors on the Liber Pontificalis. And I quote, In the August while he was bishop-elect, there appeared from the east a star from cockrow till morning for three months, and its rays pierced the skies, and at the sight of it all the provinces were agitated and people amazed. After turning in its tracks, it disappeared, on which count a very great mortality ensued from the east. Like a daytime star? A comet. Uh, I do have to say that that comet that we were supposed to see in like a week might not be able to see it anymore, and I'm sad. It did a did an explosion. It did. And you know, maybe that was a good thing. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it's still there, but like, it went, it's breaking apart. Well, they, I mean, they were really worried that Atlas was going to hit Earth, so I'm going to take the explosion as probably a good thing. Yeah, I mean, but now there's extra parts, so. That's true. So we have a comet coming, Krakatoa's erupted, we're all on quarantine. You know, it's, it's a year. <laughs> it's April Lemon. <laughs> So, this comet was also documented by the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, Paul the Deacon's History of the Lombards, and by Bede, who says, and I'm going to quote Bede here, In the year of our Lord's incarnation, 678, which is the eighth of the reign of Egfrid, in the month of August, appeared a star called a comet, which continued for three months, rising in the morning and darting out, as it were, a pillar of radiant flame. 
this whole astronomical phenomenon becomes really, really important to them at this time. So according to cometographer Gary W. Cronk, yes, that is a thing. Cronk. <laughs> and his Catalog of Comets, Volume 1, the comet was seen pretty much the entire world over, and it was similarly recorded in Chinese and Japanese text from the same period, as well as by Elias of Nisibis and the Chronicle of Ireland. So this is a pretty neat little moment that we can tie back to the Pope, because it's written about his papacy, but it's written about in all of these different places around the world. But nowhere in the research that I was able to find on the comet and its accounts in the varied sources and any commentary on the Liber Pontificalis, this great mortality ensued from the East. So not quite sure if they had a little bout of plague. From the East. It's all coming around again. It comes around so many times. But we do know that while Constantinople was still under siege, there was also a Slavic uprising and siege in Thessalonica, as described in the Miracles of St. Demetrius. So it could be an oblique reference there to this rebellion rather than to a plague, to much bigger things in the next papacy. So we're not going to go down that rabbit hole. But now that he's actually Pope, Donus has some work to do. And one of the first things he's going to do is hold some holy ordinations, because we haven't talked about that in a while. No, someone had some ordinations, but they were little and... Yes, and we're getting to the point now where I'm doing the research for popes and writing their episodes and skipping their holy ordinations because it's just not relevant to the amount of things that are happening. For Donus, he made 12 priests, 5 deacons, and 6 bishops. And one of these bishops we can actually verify by name as Vitalianus of Arezzo, as he shows up in the Chronicles of the Bishops of Arezzo, compiled by Jacopo Burali de Arezzo, in an entry stating that he was confirmed to the bishopric by Pope Donus. So, little tidbit, yay, this is an actual bishop by name that he consecrated. Now, like his predecessor, Donus was very focused on restoring the churches of Rome. He added a new paving of white marble to the court and the atrium of St. Peter's, restored the Basilica of St. Euphemia on the Appian Way, and either contributed to the restoration of St. Paul's outside the walls, or he completed the work on the Basilica of Saints Peter and Paul that had been started by Pope Adeodatus. The sources are somewhat conflicting about which St. Paul's he was actually working on, but our good friend and source Duchenne argues for the latter. A couple of episodes ago, when we covered Pope Vitalian, because everything is coming back to Pope Vitalian, we discussed Ravenna and how the Archbishop of Ravenna, Morris, with the support of Emperor Constans, had declared Ravenna to be independent of the authority of the Apostolic See as an autocephalous, self-headed bishopric. Do you remember that? I do not. It was so long ago, but that's fine. Ravenna is... Independent at this point. And Pope Vitalian had excommunicated Morris as a schismatic, and this had been an ongoing contention ever since. So this was not something that had been solved during Vitalian's papacy, and it had continued to be a problem. But in 671, Morris had died, and he was succeeded by a new bishop called Reparatus. This name is so amusing given the context, because he wanted to 
repair, and end the schism. Uh, you know the Robin Hobb books where it's like, if you name this person a thing, this is what they're going to do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Verity, Prince Chivalry, and Prince Regal, and Prince Verity. Yeah. They all had names like that. Dutiful. Yeah, they in the like they knew this curse was a thing, so they were naming the kids stuff. Yeah, good things. He would definitely be that because he's reparatus and he's gonna repair this schism of the Autocephalus Ravenna. He pledged his adherence to the Pope Donus, and so the bishopric of Ravenna was returned to allegiance and obedience to Rome and the Pope, and the schism was ended. Great news. This is awesome. Now this problem that is spitting in the face of papal primacy is over. But how exactly this was done, or if it was done at all, seems to be relatively contested at this point. Because first, if we are to take the Lipper Pontificalis at its word, we have a, a very straightforward narrative. Ravenna was brought back into the fold, and then Reparatus died. That's, that's basically what it tells us. It says, in his time, the Church of Ravenna, which had separated itself from the Roman Church to achieve independence, brought itself back into subjection into the ancient apostolic see, as it pleased God that the church's prelate named Reparatus instantly died. Oddly, though, the Liber Pontificalis also credits the same reconciliation with Ravenna to Donus's successor, Pope Agatho. So we have this account of Ravenna coming back into the fold in Donus's passage, but then we also have a passage right after it about the next pope saying that Agatho and Reparatus's successor bishop Theodore were the ones that reconciled Ravenna. So it gives us two accounts, which are conflicting and say the same thing. And it gets confusing. Thanks, Lipper Pontificalis. It could also be that this is the point where we have two separate writers, right? We, we've we seen a shift in the writing tone of the Liber Pontificalis, but maybe this is two people and they have differing views of which Pope actually did it. But then we also have the Liber Pontificalis Ecclesiae Ravenatus that we talked about in that episode by Agnellus of Ravenna, telling us something completely different, saying of Bishop Reparatus that he did not subjugate himself to the Roman see. Remember, this is the guy who absolutely hated the fact that the bishops of Ravenna were subject to the Pope. And then we have Deborah Muxkoff Delianus, a historian editor of the edition of Agnellus's book, and she's left a little footnote on Agnellus's entry here, noting that this seems to be a personal interpretation made by Agnellus, given that the return of apostolic obedience was not unanimously favored in Ravenna and not all the clergy in Ravenna were on board. They wanted to keep their independence. And Agnellus definitely wrote with his bias right out in the open, and we know that he was absolutely not in favor of being subject to Rome. So this might have been the only way that he could personally justify writing about Reparatus in glowing terms on everything else if he had, like, betrayed the Ravennese church and went back mm -hmm. to the Pope. Yeah, well, he did it, but he didn't personally subject himself, you know. <laughs> I hate it. Mental gymnastics. <laughs> so, despite these two conflicting notations, it's conventionally accepted that Donus was the Pope 
when Ravenna returned to the apostolic jurisdiction, and that Reparatus was the bishop who did it. It may just be that he died before he was able to formally present himself to the Pope, and so that task fell to the next bishop, who presented himself to the Pope to seal the deal. Or we can just take it as a reminder that the Liber Pontificalis is bad for facts, and written by many different people. So, there's that. But now, it's heresy time. Oh, boy. A new heresy. Well, actually, a very old heresy, but it's not monothelitism, and we haven't seen it in ages. Tell me. Do you want to guess which heretics have come back into the fold? The Arians. I don't know. They never Ooh. left. You're you're not that far off. It's the Nestorians. Oh, the Nestors. Okay. The two nature people. During Donus's papacy, a monastery in Rome, which is the Monasterium Boethianum, which is the Monastery of Boethius, was discovered to be home to Nestorian monks from Syria. There was just this little Nestorian Syrian pocket inside a monastery in Rome. How long they'd been there is uncertain, but if we take the position of John Moorhead from his book, The Popes in the Church of Rome in Late Antiquity, they had likely fled out of Syria during the Muslim conquest of the Levant that we discussed in Theodore's episode, episode 75, which had taken Syria around 640, which means that they had potentially been there for a while, but we also know that refugees come in waves, right? So how long they had actually been in this monastery is debatable. But the thing is, they made up this entire monastery. It's not just like they had six or seven Nestorians hanging out inside of the monastery. Every single monk in this monastery was a Nestorian somehow. And that, because it's heresy, is absolutely not going to fly. So Pope Donus had the monastery confiscated and placed into the hands of Orthodox clerics and monks. And rather than punishing the monks for their heretical views, he had them all separated out and dispersed into other Roman monasteries where they could be absorbed into an Orthodox way of thinking. That's a nice way of handling it. He didn't just excommunicate everybody. He's just like, nope, you have to go hang out with people who believe the right thing now. With that old heresy out of the way, what about the new and more pressing one? Like, what's going on with monothelitism and the relationship with Constantinople? Because I'm sure you're dying to know. I'm not at all. As we saw in our last episode, the Pope Deodatus had been fairly hands-off in his approach to dealing with the controversy and the secular powers in the East, so things had been tentatively calm. And Donus, for the most part, maintained that uneasy peace. But when he received a letter from the new bishop of Constantinople, Theodore, that proposed the churches come to an accord, but didn't include a orthodox confession of faith, Donus refused to accept. So the patriarch has now written a letter saying, hey, let's find some peace. But because he's not willing to meet the peace on the actual Pope's orthodox viewpoint, he's not getting anywhere with it. If Theodore's not going to correct the monothelites in the East, Donus doesn't want to parlay at all. However, shortly after this letter arrives, the emperor, Constantine IV, finally found himself with more time and energy to dedicate himself to this spiritual conflict. 
The sieges of Constantinople and Thessalonica that I mentioned earlier in the episode had finally ended, and he now can go, okay, my churches are fighting, let's figure this out. So in August of 678, a letter from the emperor arrived in Rome to the, end quote, to the most holy and blessed archbishop of our ancient Rome and the universal Pope Donus. It's a good way to get the Pope's attention. Flatter him right off the bat. So the letter proposed that a council should be called to bring together the emperor, the pope, and the patriarch of Constantinople to settle the monopoly controversy once and for all. And as a show of goodwill, the emperor also did something that would make any pope very pleased. Any guess? Uh, let's see. Um... No. Diptychs. Diptychs! <laughs> you got it! <laughs> Gotta be the diptychs. The letter that the emperor has written to Pope Donus indicated that Pope Vitalian's name, which we had very dramatically seen struck off the diptychs, had been officially returned to the diptychs, despite protests from the patriarch. So, this is looking good. The emperor wants to have a council. So that the Pope can get together, the Patriarch can get together, the Emperor can get together. They can settle this once and for all. Ecumenical council, it's all gonna be good. The only problem was that when this letter arrived, Pope Donus had already died. Oh. Oh no, he's already dead. And so how this whole ecumenical council proposal will play out will be the story for our next Pope in next week's episode. And it's because Pope Donus died on April 11th of 678 of natural causes slash old age, remember old age, and he was buried in Old St. Peter's. His tomb was destroyed in the construction of New St. Peter's, and we have no surviving epitaph, because, of course. I have a pontifact for you! Pontifact! This is the only place we can really talk about this, because at one point... There was also a Pope Donus II, who appeared on the list of popes, appearing in the late 900s after Pope Benedict VI. And it turns out that this Pope Donus II never actually existed. And his inclusion was a confusion between the name Donus slash Dominus and the Latin title Dominus. But this was a source of confusion for hundreds of years, so much so that this fake, non-existent pope gets his own portrait in St. Paul's Outside the Walls. So, because there is no Pope Donus II, I'm going to show you all the pictures of Donus, and then I'm going to show you the fake Donus picture, because it's clearly the same picture just changed. But we'll get that when we rate him. Are you ready to rate him? I think so. Papatum infallium. Ravenna was restored to papal authority, and the schism was ended. He dealt with the covert Nestorians who were hanging out in a monastery, and he restored the churches of Rome. What would you like to give him for that? I don't know. I'm not super... Three? Yeah, I mean, I don't... It's it's not a whole lot. I'm going to give him a point for Ravenna, because that's a big one. And even though there's there's a conflict about who actually accomplished that... It still ended the schism. So I'll give him a point for that. I'll give him a point for those covert Nestorians because what a weird thing to have to deal with. <laughs> right? 
Too bad it's not the Manichaeans having secret raves again. Oh my god, the secret raves are the best. Well, they're not happening. It's only secret Nestorians, and they're just living as monks and doing their monk life. So he will get a five in that category in total. Fructus prohibitum. Nothing, really. Zero. Seculari impactum. Now, this is a hard one to judge because the emperor reached out to him to make a connection. And that shows that there is a good sense of accord, but he was already dead. So there's not really anything to give him there. It's got to be a zero. Fossium Sanctus. You got to show me. You got to show me this old man. You said, remember that he's old, and I feel like it's going to be weird. Well, it's it definitely brings something to mind. But before that, uh, I want to point out that according to some sources, there was a contemporary image of Donus in the mosaic from the Church of Santa Marina in the Roman Forum. But by the sounds of it and all the research, this image is no longer there. So I am going to now send you an image of this old man and and see if you come to the same conclusion I do. What? That's not an old man, and that's definitely a vampire. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, here, the other thing is, like, maybe he had some plastic surgery. Like, they pulled his face back several times because he definitely has that look. The divide in his hair, like, his part is so far receded back. He's got that extra thick sideburn to hide the cut on the side of his face. I mean, from the moment I saw this image, I was like, Batman is a vampire. A hundred percent, that man is a vampire. So the fact that they kept describing him as really old was hilarious to me. Because, you know, maybe he was really, really, really old. This might just be a young depiction. I will take your score for this, and then I'm going to show you the the fake donuts. I can give him, like, a flat five. He's not remarkable, and he's not... And there's nothing displeasing about him. Okay, I'm gonna give him I'm gonna give him a nine because from the moment that I started scrolling through popes and getting all the images for them, this is one that has stood out to me the entire time because he's like I just went, that man's a vampire. And so, <laughs> so he's gonna get a nine from me. Uh, and so when we score that out, his score will be a three point five. And now I'm going to send you fake Donus, which is clearly this image, but made old. Oh, wow. That's like uh, the digital, like, this person was kidnapped and this is what they may look like. Or when you have a vampire who hasn't drank blood in a while, or you have that, <laughs> that Dracula dichotomy. You know, when they start shriveling and you see how old they are, it's Dorian Gray kind of situation. It's bad, and I love it. When I found this, it just made my day. I do have some more images of Donus for you that definitely depict an older man. So there's that one, and then there's that one, which is just derivative of the first. But more withered. Well, apparently that's a theme here. You know, first you have a smoother Donus, and then you have a rankly Donus. <laughs> So that's a thing, and I enjoyed that, and he is our vampire pope, which, as one of the younger popes, too, like, he's, aside from Caius, he's definitely one of the younger popes that we've seen, and that could make him more handsome than most of the men that we've seen. So he could be the hot vampire pope, although he's not 
particularly good looking. I'm scoring him well. Yeah, you are. Tempus Pontificus. November 2nd, 676 to April 11th, 678. 1.5 years for a score of 0.375. All right, everybody, it's the canon bonus round. He is not a saint. Oh, can't have a donut saint. Is there a saint of donuts? I know there's a saint of baking, but like donuts are slightly different. Well, I think it just goes back to the patron saint of baking, because if you Google patron saint of donuts, you will get Saint Honore, which is the patron saint of bakers. So now no donuts, no donuts for donuts. So his total score is better than our last pope. He scored an 8.875. It's not even in the tens club. So the vampire pope did not accomplish very much. No, I guess not. Someone went, you don't look like you've aged at all. And he goes, oh, I'm dead. And then he comes back as Donus too, and makes everybody think that it's a fake Pope that never existed. So now I must ask you, do you think he's papal enough or pizzazzy enough with an impact enough for a papal bull? Um, uh, you don't know if that vampire man is still walking around. He, he look, might come for you. There's a lot of things that are trying to come for me now. <laughs> and I feel like if the vampire man came for me, at least I would know that the vampire man is coming. You would. And, you know, I think we've probably, after all of this, pandemic stuff gotten a little bit more brave since pope eugene threatened to haunt us (laughs) pope eugene came after us but then the apocalypse tried to happen like 10 times and it's given me a different perspective so we're not afraid of vampires Mm -mm, no if the vampire comes at me vampire blood kills diseases though so hey i think i think Don't quote me on this, because I don't know. I think that Edward Cullen was made a vampire because of the Spanish flu. Oh, God. I have... Who... No. I can't even engage with that. Don't you talk Twilight at me. I will talk Twilight at you periodically, because you know who's not coming in and telling me weird stuff about the Twilight fandom? Like, no. Stephanie Meyer. You know who is doing that? J.K. Rowling. It's a bad comparison, Fry. This is terrible. <laughs> if terrible. Stephanie Myers is going to stay in her lane with her junky vampire novels, I will definitely like be like, hey, I guess this is a thing sometimes. Well, and I mean, Anne Rice is coming at the fan fiction writers. And... Yeah, Anne Rice doesn't stay in her lane. She's she's a fighty woman, so... <laughs> Wow, I can't, I never, that is the real sign of the apocalypse, when when you're prepared to support Stephanie Meyer over J.K. Rowling and Anne Not in terms of writing quality, but just, like, they need to stay in their little boxes and not come out and try to invade other boxes. This is, like, the true sign of the apocalypse. Well, we still have one more thing to do. We have a lot of thank yous to make. Like, oh my gosh, we have a lot. A month worth of thank yous? Yeah. Here we go. I'm going to buckle in now. I'm going to put my seatbelt on. 
I actually started, because there were so many, I started putting some on next week's episode. So if we don't thank you in this episode, it's coming. It's just that there the list was getting long. So first of all, we have patrons to absolve of their temporal sins. So thank you to Brian Fullerton. Ego te absolvo. And then we need to thank for books. Oh my goodness. We need to thank Lady Jane Wilde from Twitter for supplying us with a book from our Amazon wish list, which is awesome. She sent us A Tale of Two Lovers, which um I don't want to give too much away, but I'm going to have to give some stuff away here. One of the popes writes some porn, and now we have it that we can read it when we get there. Oh my god, get ready. I'm so good at reading bad fanfiction. Oh yeah, and it, it's, a, it's a full book. Ah, I'm so ready. We can read it chapter by chapter. I'm so ready. I'm so ready for bad porn. It's a while away, but it, it, I'm very excited to have a, a copy of it, so that's great. And I also have to thank Ethan Johnson of the history of how we play for um in there are no other phrases but a metric f- ton of books thank you so much ethan he he got us so like 20 books off of our wish list and and it's amazing and i can't even i was very overwhelmed by how many books were suddenly in our possession so thank you so much ethan and then thank you gene chapman and laurie ankerson and angelica burton again for the tonsure information and then we need to thank a bunch of podcasts who have been using their quarantine time to recommend us. So, Sad Girl Study Guides, Age of Victoria, Can't Make This Up History, Outlandish Historians, and Human Circus Pod, the Presidency's Podcast, and thank you to the History of the Inca for reviewing us on Apple iTunes. Also, I want to thank Dr. Kat Jarman, who is an amazing like Norse Viking historian. She's incredible. And there there was all that information going out about the Saint Corona being Ah uh, yes, Saint Corona again. Yes, being the patron saint of pandemics. And so I wrote a thread on Twitter about actual saints that have things to do with pandemics. We got to talk about Saint Roach in this sexy we did we're gonna be talking about saint roach forever so thank you to her for for putting that out in the world and making sure that the right information exists in the world so i didn't think that when we recorded that episode on saint roach (laughs) it would be so relevant and if you want to hear all of our discussion about saint roach and his sexy leg wound it's on patreon Join us there. Hey, I am doing, this is, this is going to be a great plug for, for Patreon. If you're interested in joining us right now, I am doing a, our research for the next special that we're going to do, which is about angelology. And yes, that's a word. <laughs> and too many eyes. Oh yeah. Well, guess what? Possible of wheels. <laughs> yeah. They're all really weird, but. To be fair, they do preface appearing with be not afraid. <laughs> yeah, don't be scared of me. It's it's a wild ride, so this is a great time to sign up. And if you can't, because quarantine and all that stuff, totally get it. We're not pushing anything, but just angelology. Come back later. It's not like it's going away. Yeah, it's all there. You can listen to like a year's worth of, of anti-popes and all that kind of stuff. Anti-popes are coming back real soon. 
Oh, I didn't think we were ever going to. I mean, we had to have some more. We don't have Felix 5 yet, so we had to have more antipopes. There's like 42 antipopes. There's two coming very soon. Very soon. So, yeah, with that, we've, we have draggled on for a bit. It's been a long time since we've recorded, so we have lots to say. So thank you very much for listening, and goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.